First Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 begins our reading of God's inspired and infallible word. First Kings chapter 8 beginning at verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the eleventh in the, in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month, then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. And the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who were assembled to him, were with him before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, And the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. It happened when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Revelation 15, verse three through, uh, rather 5 through 8 is our text. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts 
have been revealed. After these things, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the sanctuary, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was, uh, rather the sanctuary was filled with the smoke, uh, with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The word of God's grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. The heavens are telling your glory, O Lord, our God. The whole earth shines forth your, the, the glorious reality of your creative power. We Praise you as our creator, the one who's created the heavens and the earth. And as our redeemer, the one who has revealed his will for us in his word. And we humble ourselves now, O Lord, before your almighty word. How much more, O Lord, does your glory shine in your word? How much more do we see your glory, O Father, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, reflected in your word? And we pray, O Lord, that you would show us your glory in your holy word. We ask that you would give us the Holy Spirit in great measure, that we might understand what you've revealed to us. In the passage before us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Revelation 15 initiates the fifth cycle of visions in this book, introducing the seven bowls of wrath in chapter 16. This is the the gateway, uh, if you will, into the seven bowls of wrath. In the visions of uh, the vision of chapter fifteen, verses one to four, God's saints are depicted standing uh, standing by the sea of glass, mixed with fire, symbolizing the Red Sea. There are the saints standing victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Verse 2. The Red Sea imagery is confirmed by their song. In verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb. Here, 
The vision to John pictures the saints rejoicing by the water's edge like Moses and the Israelites after the original sea crossing of Exodus chapter 15 and 16, or rather 14 and 15, a victorious over Pharaoh and his army. The wording of the victor's song in verses 3 and 4 is a blend of Old Testament praises for God's perfections revealed through his mighty and righteous interventions on behalf of his people, judging his enemies. In the confession uh, that the saints sing to God, recorded for us here in Revelation 15, 3 and 4, They sing, great and marvelous, great and marvelous are your works. And those works are the judgments of God. In particular, punishing his enemies, vindicating his people. God's justice is the predominant theme of the psalm. Extolled at the beginning, righteous and true are your ways, and the conclusion, your righteous acts have been revealed. God's judgments are praiseworthy. And this passage teaches us that we ought to join in with the saints' heavenly chorus in praising God for his righteous judgments. Revelation 15, 5 through 8, now joins the opening vision of the saints' victory song, praising God for his judgments with a vision of the opened sanctuary of God, from which God's judgment of the seven plagues in the seven bowls of wrath comes. Chapter 15, verse 1, has told us that there is a finality about these judgments, which are the last, it says, because in them the wrath of God is finished. The finality of God's judgment poured out upon apostate Israel foreshadows God's final judgment on the last day. It's what we're being shown here in In our text, in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 15, the finality of God's judgment poured out on apostate Israel foreshadows God's final judgment on the last day. There's a finality about the judgment that is being depicted here in verses 5 through 8, which is not the judgment of the last day, but it nevertheless foreshadows, it foretells, of the coming wrath of God at the second coming of Christ. We'll see three things here. First, God's presence in judgment. Secondly, God's agents of judgment. And thirdly, God's judgment finalized. God's presence in judgment, his agents of judgment, and his judgment finalized. In the first place, then, the first thing we're shown here in verse 5, is God's presence to judge. God's presence in judgment. In verse 5, 
John sees the tabernacle of heaven open. Some of our English translations have the temple of uh, the tabernacle. I even took liberty uh, in terms of uh, what the way this uh, translation, this English translation, the New American Standard reads. And I read that the sanctuary, the sanctuary of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. Sometimes uh, in the New Testament, this word translated in the majority of our English versions, temple, refers broadly to the whole temple, and sometimes in a narrower sense to the inner sanctuary of the temple, that is, the holy place and the holy of holies, and sometimes even narrower to the holy of holies itself, which is the case here in Revelation 15.5, as it speaks of the sanctuary of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. That's what's opened in this uh, vision to John. It's the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven, the heavenly counterpart to the tabernacle in which God dwelt during Israel's wanderings, thereby connecting here in our text the victory of God's people in verses 1 through 4 with God's presence that went with them. The writer to the Hebrews shows us that the Mosaic tabernacle was a copy and shadow of the heavenly original, the true tabernacle, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 2 and 5, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. And it's opening in this vision in Revelation reveals the presence, the power, and the covenant faithfulness of God both to bless and to judge. The testimony of the tabernacle in the time of Moses centered on the law of God as The tabernacle and the the tent and all of its furnishings were were brought up to the house of God there in 1 Kings chapter 8. We're specifically told that that there was nothing in uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant but the ten words that Moses put there at Mount Horeb. This is the tabernacle of the testimony. This is a reference here to uh, what's being opened up here is God's revelation in, uh, in the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. Not the copy on earth, but the true tabernacle. It's therefore in keeping with the testimony of God's law that the final plagues come from God's holy presence to judge apostate Israel for its sin. 
Now, the tab- tabernacle, you remember, also bore testimony to God's mercy. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. Literally, the propitiatory. Leviticus 16, 14. That which turns away the wrath of God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Aaron, the high priest, entered the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat to atone for the transgressions of the sons of Israel in order to turn God's wrath away from them due to sin. Now that same mercy that God expressed to His covenant people in days of old expresses itself once again to His people in the first century. It's what our vision is showing us in the final judgment of apostate Israel who persisted in afflicting the church. And the appearing of this heavenly tabernacle here in the vision to John was designed to bring comfort to the church of the first century. Those who were undergoing the great tribulation It says that Satan and his agents, whether the sea beast representing the Roman Empire or the land beast representing the false teachers of Judaism, cannot persist to persecute the church without in due time receiving God's terrible wrath. Today, Christians are attacked with brutal violence all over the uh, the world. Especially in nations dominated by Islam, but also in nations where there's dictatorial paranoia, fear of the rulers of that nation, of those nations that, uh, that that church will rise up and and threaten their rule. In the West, radically secular governments are becoming increasingly intolerant of Christian truth and morality, so that the mild persecution that we experience in the West is likely to become much more severe. As a result, the Christian church faces a dire worldwide threat that would have been unimaginable a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, or even twenty years ago. But what's most important is that God remains enthroned in heaven. That hasn't changed. God is in heaven, over the vault of the earth, over the inhabitants of the earth. Nothing transpires apart from his will. His covenant reality is, uh, his covenant presence rather, is a reality to his people And it ensures 
that his people will be upheld under persecution so as not to falter under their oppressors and that their oppressors will be cast down under plagues that come from heaven. God's mercy revealed in the covenant of grace ensures that believers in Jesus Christ will be redeemed from sin and corporately redeemed to stand with him on Mount Zion as victors. That's the first thing then that we're seeing in this vision to John verses 5 through 8 of Revelation chapter 15. We're seeing God's covenant presence, God's presence in judgment. Secondly, we are shown God's agents of judgment. Chapter 13 has revealed that Satan, the red dragon, the great red dragon, has both political and religious agents through which he carries out his warfare against the saints on earth. The sea beast, we've said, symbolizing the great empire, the land beast, later called the false prophet, symbolizing apostate Judaism. This trio of the, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast is formidable, but the vision that follows chapter 13 In chapter 14 depicts the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and his saints standing on Mount Zion, victorious, to show that the powers of heaven are mightier than Satan and his demonized agents. And now in this vision in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, we're being shown that God's mighty judgments over Satan and his agents will prevail and that God has his agents of judgment. The seven angels who had the seven bowls of wrath, verse 6. Angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1, verse 14 says, and that's the way we ordinarily think of angels. Uh, But angels are also warriors in God's word. And they're also depicted as those through whom God brings judgment. Remember, uh, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, the three men, one of whom was the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, who appeared uh, to Abraham before uh, bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, with him, two angels Uh, We learn later that these other two men that Abraham saw, they were angels, and and and, and, uh, the angel of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate, sends these two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to do what? To bring judgment on those cities. And that's what we're being shown here. We're we're shown seven angels with seven plagues, that are contained in the seven bowls of wrath, soon to be poured out in chapter 16, these are agents of Jehovah's judgment. John sees the seven angels 
introduced in verse 1, coming out of the sanctuary that's been opened in heaven. As in verse 1, they have the seven plagues. Four times in Revelation, including here in verse 6, the bull judgments are called the seven plagues. Chapter 15 and verse 1, verse 6, verse 8, chapter 21 and verse 9. The only other place in Scripture, outside Revelation, where this phrase occurs is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Leviticus 26, verse 21, where we read, I will further bring upon you, that is Israel, seven plagues according to your sins. The Leviticus text also concerns woes there in chapter 26 that God will send on those who commit idolatry. Four times it's repeated that God will judge them seven times if they become unfaithful. Each sevenfold figurative expression introduces a, a successively worse ordeal that's coming on idolaters unless on the condition that Israel repents of her idolatry. And idolatry is the problem here. In Revelation 15.5 through 16.21, if there's repentance, then that Leviticus passage says that God would bless Israel again. The, the afflictions cited there are not only to purge and to punish, but also to serve as, as warnings for people to repent, as these warnings do. Warnings of coming judgment here in Revelation. Seven angels are, uh, we read in verse 6, clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their chests with golden sashes. Verse 6, the Description is almost identical to that of the Son of Man, to Jesus himself in the opening vision of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 13, which appears to be implying that these seven angels are identified with Christ as agents of the judgment that is being carried out here in the seven bowls of wrath. One of the four living creatures Verse 7, introduced in Revelation 4, verse 6, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, uh, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Bowls in the Old Testament were used in conjunction with the priestly service in the tabernacle or temple. And now angelic priests minister with the bowls at the heavenly altar of the tabernacle of, test, of testimony. These, uh, the, the altar isn't mentioned here specifically, but it's implied. That's clear from chapter 16 and, and verse 7. I heard the, the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. There, uh, the altar is explicitly associated with the seven bowls. Judgments, the, the, 
the, the bowls of wrath being poured out. And the connection with the altar then shows us another connection, and that's with the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints under the altar, crying out for vengeance, crying out to, to the God of heaven, the one who is in the sanctuary of the tabernacle in heaven, crying out to him for vengeance upon their enemies. The, the, the prayers of the saints later on, uh, chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, and that connection to the altar, uh, between the altar and the bowls of wrath, is, con- is further confirmed by the similarity of the wording. The seven, uh, the, the golden bowls full of the wrath of God here in verse 7, 15 verse 7, and the golden bowls full of incense representing the saints' prayers in chapter 5 and verse 8. So here, the bowls symbolize God's wrath which comes to judge sinful people. Verse 7 emphasizes the eternality of God's judgments, the, uh, the eternal coming from the eternal being in heaven, the one who lives forever and ever, which guarantees that his judgment on evil and his covenant faithfulness to his people will never fail. And as a result, no nation or power that rebels against him, no nation or individual that persecutes his people will be able to stand. Either they'll be judged in history and destroyed, or they'll face the ultimate fury of Christ on the day of his return to save his church. Coming out from the presence of the ever-living God and from the tabernacle in heaven, the true tabernacle where his holy law and his covenant faithfulness to his people are recorded, these seven angels show us that nothing can stand against God's eternal law. God will judge those who rebel against him. The opening of the tabernacle and the appearing of the wrath of God in, in, in these Uh, wrath-bearing agents of God, the angels of God, tells us that uh, God holds people and nations accountable to his revealed word, that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And then thirdly, our text in verse 8 shows us that God's judgment is finalized. In verse 8 of our text, God's overpowering glory is displayed as smoke fills the temple and 
prevents anyone from entering it significantly until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This cloud of unapproachable holiness had filled the tabernacle at its consecration in the days of Moses. As we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, it was also displayed in the temple after uh, the construction of the temple, as Solomon finished the temple. In both instances, the effect was so overpowering that the priests could not enter the sanctuary to perform their ministry. In the vision to John, the unapproachability of the cloud of God's glory not only conveys his utter holiness, but also draws our attention to the finality of his creature's exile from his holy presence until the seven plagues were finished. The term finished is repeated from Revelation 15.1 where we heard that in these seven plagues the wrath of God is finished. So the trumpet calls have, he, have, has, have sounded out God's warnings. God has patiently delayed his judgment and now his patience has come to an end. In the vision of the sixth trumpet, chapter 10, verses 6 to 5, the strong angel, you remember, Jesus himself, the one who had, his, had a foot on the land and a foot on the sea, swore by him, lifted up his right hand to, uh, to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and, and things in it and the earth, and the things in it, and the sea, and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Plagues will pour out from these bowls without interruption, and God's judgment against apostate Israel for rejecting his Messiah, for crucifying his Messiah, for persecuting his redeemed ones would be finalized in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year A.D. 70. Not the most... Encouraging thing, I suppose, to think about judgment in this way. But it should be encouraging to us. Maybe not on the face of it, it's not encouraging. Uh, but remember, we're being shown here the, the, the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven. That tabernacle... Uh, where uh, the testimony resides, God's law resides, is full of blessings for God's people. It's also full of, God, of, of judgments for those who disobey his word. 
And we need to realize that judgment is necessary to bring about God's kingdom. Judgment is an integral part of the forward progress of the kingdom of God. The revelation to John gives us perspective on that judgment. It teaches us uh, that in times of apostasy, we need to look beyond it. We need to see the finality of God's judgment. We need to see the, the end point of, of God's judgment and believe that God is working out His purposes even in the darkest of days in which we might live. God is at work. God is in power. God is present. God is faithful to His covenant in bringing judgment on the apostates. God's historical judgments on apostate Israel in 722 B.C., when the northern kingdom fell to Assyria in 586 B.C., when the kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonian Empire, when Jerusalem was besieged, when uh, the temple was destroyed and desecrated, and God's historical judgment in A.D. 70, when his judgment against apostate Israel was finalized. These all foreshadow the final judgment, the last day, Christ's second coming, that will terminate history. Then the wrath of God will be finished in an ultimate sense in the judgment of the ungodly in hell. Hell isn't the absence of God as some have defined it, but the absence of God's comfortable presence. That's what our catechism teaches us. What are the punishments of sin in the world to come? It answers the punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. It's a sobering thought, is it not? And God's judgments, ultimately, God's judgments in history are warning us to flee from the wrath to come. To flee from the finality of his judgment when there will be no turning back. You know, that judgment is coming for most of us, at least as far as I can tell, not predicting that Christ won't return in our, uh, in our lifetime. It doesn't seem very likely to me that he will. Now, perhaps uh, I'll be surprised happily, and he will. 
But judgment comes at death. It's appointed for man to die once. Hebrews 9.27 says, and after this comes judgment. And after that judgment, there is. That's the point of no return. Death brings finality to judgment for every human being. So we're being told here, we're being called here, just as the seven seals, the seven trumpets were warnings of coming, ju- coming judgment, and, and that's finalized in the pouring out of the bowls of wrath against apostate Israel. So we're, we're taught in God's word to see these judgments, this, these historical judgments as uh, ultimately foreshadowing, pre-announcing God's final judgment on the last day. And we're being told to flee from God's terrible wrath to the Lord Jesus Christ. Else we live forever outside the comfortable presence of the Lord. How do we do that? Bible tells us that we flee by faith. Jesus said, John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Out of death into the comfortable, the blessed the glorious presence of God forever and ever. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, 19 through 13, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth, uh, rather with the heart one believes, resulting in righteousness And with the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do I flee from the coming wrath of God due to sin? How do I flee from this final judgment of God? I flee by faith. I call upon the name of the Lord. I flee in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, your judgments are indeed righteous. Righteous and true are your ways, O God. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Your righteous acts are revealed in your judgments. Your judgments throughout history have been recorded for us in your word to wake us up to the reality of ultimate judgment on the 
the last day. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves, to make sure that we have fled your coming wrath through repentance from sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We look to you now, O God, the God who has declared that he will judge the world through the man that he's he's appointed, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We look to that day. We ask that you would hasten that day. We teach, uh, pray, Lord, you teach us to look beyond the, your judgments in history, even on uh, what you are doing in our own day, and believe that you're working out your purposes even in the darkest days of the world. And that you, O oh Lord, would... Grant that we would trust in your presence. Grant, O Lord, that the presence of the Holy Spirit within us would be a great comfort to us in uh, our own lives, even when you're bringing temporal judgment upon us to chastise us, to discipline us for good. Give us a godly perspective. Give us the perspective that you show us in your word, O Lord, and not the perspective that the unbelieving or uh, liberals cast upon the judgments of your holy word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.